Hello and welcome to the Dark Ages podcast. This is episode 20, Gepids, Eastgoths, and Huns. Oh my. The problem with the story is that if I am not careful, this whole thing can feel like a tennis match with our attention being pulled from west to east and back. So, to avoid that feeling, I have focused on the Western Empire pretty much exclusively for the last five episodes. But now, our attention must shift again to the east, to beyond the Danube and Carpathians, and catch up with what's been going on out there. And it'll give us a reason to talk about the Huns again. And who doesn't like talking about the Huns? We'll take a minute or two to find out what happened to the Huns after Attila's death, and to the Goths that he had ruled, and all the other smaller tribes and peoples that had emerged from the wreckage of his empire. All kinds of wildcard elements that'll find their way into the story of the last decades of the Roman West. The chaotic swirl out on the Hungarian plains gave birth to new or re-emergent tribes that had been subdued before. New ethnic groups were created in that forge, and the nature and mechanics of ethnicity is a powerful subtext in the study of early medieval history. So, now is a perfect time to talk about that. Ethnic conflict is a phrase that is pretty omnipresent in news reporting. It especially has a place in my brain because I was becoming politically aware during the wars in Yugoslavia. Ethnic conflict, ethnic cleansing, we know what those things mean, right? I mean, we do, don't we? This might be a big one, folks. Let's get into it. An ethnic group is nothing more or less than a group of people who share a common identity, often based on language, on culture, or an, an understanding of history. The news and our general understanding of such things can make it seem as if these are fixed and immutable features of human beings. But that is very much not the case. Ethnicities are created and change over the course of history. The process is called ethnogenesis, and the mechanics of ethnogenesis are much discussed and debated. As you can imagine, there is a lot of room for partisan or nationalistic interpretations of this kind of thing, so the modern historian's goal of avoiding bias is more important than ever. To that end, let me say right up front that the models of ethnogenesis that I am about to present come from an article by Patrick J. Geary, and there are plenty of criticisms available for any of them, and plenty of alternative theories. But, according to Geary, three modes of ethnogenesis can be observed among the peoples around the fringes of the Roman Empire. There was a steppe model, a model that's called the kernel model, and a diffuse model. This is starting to get into college essay territory, isn't it? Well, I've told you what I'm going to tell you, and so now be prepared for me telling you. We'll start with the steps. The last time I brought up the Huns, it was to watch Attila bleed out in his wedding bed. I have a probably inappropriate vision of Attila's sons gathered around his body like at the beginning of the death of Stalin. If you don't get that reference, go and watch the death of Stalin immediately and then come back. Go on. I'm not going anywhere. I'll be here when you get back whenever you're ready. It's good, right? Anyway, the political structure of the Huns made disintegration of the empire at that point almost inevitable. 
because despite the sustained contact with the Romans and Goths, the Huns had maintained the old structure of the steppe. They defined themselves as a people by that structure. The Huns were never a unified entity except during the brief period when they were ruled by Attila and Blaida, and then Attila alone. Even then, it is likely that independent tribes operated on the northern and eastern edges of Attila's control, beyond the sight of our Roman historians. They defined themselves as Huns by adherence to a common set of rules and values. Life was hard for those on the steppes. It revolved around the seasonal rhythm of the pastoralists, a nomadic cycle in search of grass for the herds on which their livelihood depended. You may remember way back in the first episodes about the Huns, their relative poverty when they first appeared. That poverty was a constant among all the steppe tribes. Some materials that could not be made on the grasslands, like large-scale metalwork like swords, and those had to be traded or stolen from the more settled neighbors. So raiding was as much a part of life as herding was, and just as necessary for survival. In such a precarious situation, a variation in the weather, disease on the herd, or a single moment of bad luck could easily be the difference between plenty and starvation. And in those cases, trading became even more important. And so many steppe tribes would keep caches of unused luxury goods taken in raids for trading in emergencies. Roman observers never really grasped this concept, and so a stereotype emerged of a greedy barbarian of the plains who stole things that they then did not use. It's not that they weren't using them, it's that they were saving them for a rainy day. Steppe people like the Huns defined themselves through a shared language and lifestyle traditions, and so organization was loose and had little to no use for territorial distinction. Much of the time, various tribes recognized each other as Huns like us, without seeing any need for formal political association. The importance of raiding to the economy, though, meant that short-term cooperation happened often, as a large raiding party is obviously more likely to succeed than a smaller one. Occasionally, a charismatic leader would be able to keep one of these combined bands together for a longer than normal period, and through continual military success and the generous distribution of treasure, he could maintain and expand his raiding army into a larger confederation. We saw this a couple of times in the early history of the Huns' interactions with the Romans, in the great raids of Alden, for example. But Alden's example also demonstrates the fragility of the arrangement. If even a few of the constituent groups under a leader could be discouraged or bought off, then they would leave and damage the leader's prestige and his ability to keep the rest of the confederacy together. There was no larger ideology or identity bonding them to each other. Put another way, their status as Huns was not dependent on membership in the Confederation, and membership in the Confederation did not automatically make you a Hun if you weren't one already. By the same token, these Confederations were extraordinarily adept at absorbing conquered peoples, since they made no demands that subjects abandon their identity in order to join. If you rode with the Hunnic army, you would be rewarded for success and punished for failure. You might never be recognized as a Hun, but what did that matter if there was still wealth and advancement available? Besides, disobedience or defiance would probably achieve only an immoderately cruel death for yourself and your family and possibly your whole people. We saw in the descriptions of Priscus the extraordinary diversity of people that surrounded Attila in his heyday. Huns, Goths, Alans, and even some Romans and Greeks 
who had found that they could maintain their own identities while still finding great rewards within the Horde. But since only material reward, combined with terror, held Attila's empire together, when he died, everything fell apart remarkably quickly. There was no immediate obvious successor, and while the Huns apparently had traditions governing the division of property among children, the constituents of the empire had no interest in being so divided. So the Huns' empire fell apart with consequences we'll talk about in a few minutes. Inside the Hunnic Confederation, of course, were all the Gothic tribes that had not escaped into the empire. Before the Huns' arrival, the Goths had been developing an identity and structure in their own way, in an entirely different context. We have more information about the organization and values of the Goths, thanks to their prolonged contact with the Romans, and we've discussed a lot of it in the early episodes of this podcast. Gothic settlements were villages, mostly populated by free men and women, and loosely joined into clans by kinship ties and an understanding of a common ancestry. Violence within the clan was taboo, and villages might cooperate in the pursuit of outside conflicts or feuds. Families being families, though, these cooperative units were flexible, since every village had multiple kinship ties to choose from. The clans, in turn, were collected together by a shared understanding of a common set of political, legal, and religious tradition, and maybe most importantly among the Goth, a set of shared ancestry and origin myths. To quote Gary directly, all of these were flexible, multiple, and subject to negotiation and even dispute. End quote. As a settled agricultural people, the Goths placed a premium on peaceful relations within the clan and as far as possible among the clans. Religious and legal tradition focused on the arbitration of disputes to avoid violence, or at least to moderate it by controlling blood feuds and prevent them from expanding into wider violence. Meanwhile, prestige and wealth were to be had by raiding the neighbors outside of the clan, and ambitious young men could make names for themselves that way. All of these traditions were incarnate in the person of sacred kings, who personified the ancient and sacred ancestry of the people. This model of kingship wasn't exclusive to the Goths. Something similar was encountered by the Romans in their early interactions with the Celts of Gaul, and it continued long after the empire's fall in the lands far from its influence, like Scandinavia and the deep interior of Germania. But contact with the empire changed the Goths, as it did everyone else. Faced with the military might of Rome, the sacred kings, who had few real practical responsibilities, were gradually replaced by strong military leaders, usually from the same royal families, but now having more direct control over fighting units. That change actually was positive from the Roman Empire's perspective, since such leaders were more likely to act out of self-interest, and could therefore be manipulated and pitted against one another for the Romans' benefit. To maintain harmony and some semblance of concerted action, the non-royal role of the judge emerged as the defining feature of Gothic society, as we talked about in those early days. The process of creating Germanic kingdoms out of scattered, divided tribes is a subject of the kind of debate that makes academia seem slightly frightening from a distance. For a while, the most widely accepted model was called the Tradition Kern model, the Tradition Kernel. Proposed by Venskis and Wolfram, there he is again, it suggests a coalescence of groups of people around a successful aristocratic or military core. The group then carries a set of origin myths about itself, 
which forms the basis of their identity, its ethnic identity. In the case of the Germanic peoples, there are some common themes that can be traced. First, the crossing of a body of water as a people, as a foundational act. Second, the arrival of a new religious system, and here I don't mean the Christian conversion, rather the replacement of the ancient Vanir gods with the Aesir gods, which should be familiar to those of you who know your Norse mythology. Finally, there are stories about conflict with and defeat of some traditional enemy or other. Often, ancestor figures appear in pairs, usually as brothers. And if you accepted all of these stories, the theory goes, that made you a member of the group. There are problems with this model as it relates to the Germans. First of all, the replacement of one set of gods by another is also prominent in Greek and Roman myth. It's not an exclusively German thing. Sacred twins are also not exclusively a Germanic idea. See Castor and Pollux, again, Greek and Roman. There are other problems, too, and for maybe understandable reasons, anything that suggests that there was a unifying ideology that set the Germans apart from everyone else can make modern historians a little twitchy. So, we have the step model of charismatic leadership and reward, the tradition current model of groups bound to aristocratic leaders by a shared worldview and traditions, and that leaves the third model, which I called the diffuse model. It is the hardest one to visualize and doesn't directly affect our narrative as yet, but it won't take long and I hate to leave you hanging. The essential difference between the Gothic tradition and the diffuse model was how the traditions were transmitted. Among the Eastern Germans, the royal house and aristocracy team seemed to have personified and perpetuated the foundation myth, and the greater society then arranged themselves around that. Further to the west, among the Alamanni and Bavarians, Similar Germanic religion was in place, but the traditions were carried on at a more communal level with no need for the centralizing influence of a single royal house. A similar process was certainly underway north and east of the Goths among the nascent Slavic peoples. It's impossible to know now whether an individual of these groups would understand themselves to be an Alamanni or a Slav at all. They appear to us only in the Roman sources, not the Slavs, but the Alamanni and the Bavarians. And the Romans were not particularly interested in capturing the nuances of their neighbors' lives. Instead, they sought to catalog and codify an unchanging world where the inhabitants of Alamania were Alamanni forever, and the inhabitants of Scythia were Scythians, even as, in reality, Scythians were replaced by Sarmatians, were replaced by Goths and Huns in succession. I have rambled a bit, I fear. Let's get back to the politics of the whole thing. Under Attila, the various Gothic tribes that had not abandoned their homeland more or less maintained their social structure. Gothic and other East German magnates who served Attila loyally were rewarded with wealth and power, which gave them, in turn, greater influence over their own tribesmen. So when Attila died, his empire was already riddled with rival power bases, that had only been attached to the Hun leader by, as mercenaries, essentially. They had no ideological or cultural incentive to follow any of his descendants. Attila's sons, by contrast, were very much attached to the idea that they would step into the place of their father. Their cultural conditioning was that the empire was essentially a family business to be divided and passed on to the next generation, as a herd might be. Between these two perspectives, conflict is inevitable. 
Sources for the civil war that followed Attila's death are naturally limited. We're pretty much stuck with Jordanes and Priscus again. As such, nothing even remotely like an unbiased account is available, and details are thin on the ground. We know that Attila had many children, though only three are named for us. Jordanes puts it like this, quote, Attila's sons were almost a nation unto themselves thanks to his freewheeling libido. They demanded that the subject nations be divided by lot, as with household property. Warlike kings and their people might be distributed by lot. End quote. Jordanes discussed that the crass arrangement is obvious, and it was a feeling that was apparently shared by many, if not most, of the non-Huns who stood to be so divided. Jordanes names a king called Arderic as leader of the response to this insulting arrangement. Arderic had been one of Attila's greatest supporters. He and his people, the Gepids, had constituted the right wing of Attila's forces at the Catalanian fields, and had fought bravely and loyally. Now, though, he raised his army against the sons of Attila, who were also fighting among themselves, and induced other tribes to join him. We have no details on the course of the war that followed, not how long it lasted, or how the battle lines were drawn. It must have been, at some points, a multipolar conflict, as various tribes of both Hun and non-Hun formed alliances and coalitions, and then turned on each other as soon as was convenient. Among the peoples involved were the Ostrogoths, for whose king Jordanes was writing a hundred years later. So there is much debate about their role in the war and how honest Jordanes was about it. Jordanes, of course, puts the Ostrogoths on the right side of history, with the rebels. Modern scholars are pretty evenly split on this one. Some place them on the Hun side, though there were probably more than one Hun side. Others, that they simply sat it out. And some accept Jordanes' view as being on the rebel side. This is one debate I'm not going to weigh in on, since in the end it doesn't seem to matter that much. And we will get back to the Ostrogoths in a little bit. However much back and forth there was, after about a year, the war came to a head in 454 on the banks of the river Nedao. No one knows where the river Nedao was, but it was somewhere in Pannonia, and probably one of the tributaries of the Sava, so probably modern Croatia or Serbia. I'm going to read a big chunk of Jordani's description of the battle in full, starting with his fairly labored metaphor. Quote, War was waged in Pannonia, next to a river called Nedao. Various nations Attila had held in his sway came into combat there. Kingdoms and their people are divided. From a single body distinct limbs are formed. Not such limbs as have compassion at the sufferings of the single whole, but limbs that are reciprocally insensate when the head is cut off, that never find equal to themselves unless they themselves injure themselves with mutual wounds, and thereby the strongest nations destroyed themselves the joys of late antique Latin prose. I think the scene there must cause wonderment, where it is possible to see a goth fighting with pikes, a gepid raging with a sword, a rugian breaking off spears from his wound, possible to picture a Swavian with a stone, a Hun with an arrow, possible to construct an Alanic line with heavy armor, a Herulean rank with light armor. After many grim clashes, an unexpected victory fell to the gepids. Arderic's sword and unity annihilated nearly 30,000 men from the Huns and their allied nations. In the battle, Attila's son Elak was killed, whom his father is said to have loved so much beyond his other children. End quote. 
Arderic and his Gepids triumph broke the last Hun power in Pannonia. It also set up a struggle for supremacy in Attila's former territories. And so in their defeat, as in their victory, the Huns sent another round of new people spinning like the shards of a broken plate across the map and into the Roman Empire. But the Huns didn't just disappear. They didn't all suddenly decide to join with the Goths and Gepid, nor were they hunted down and exterminated. In a much diminished state, they would continue on, under the leadership of two of Attila's surviving sons, Dengizich and Ernak. The brothers seem to have divided the leadership of the tribes between them, with Dengizich in the west and Ernak in the east. Dengizich's Huns maintained just enough juice to continue to conduct raids into the Eastern Roman Empire, and even resubjugate some Ostrogothic tribes. With these, he attempted to strong-arm a renewal of tribute payments from Constantinople, but was refused. His subsequent attempts at invasion was headed off by Roman diplomacy, who, in an echo of the trials of Olden, convinced the Goths under his command to rebel against Dengizich. Dengizich was less fortunate than Alden, and he was killed by his rebellious men, his head sent back in a box to Constantinople, his tribesmen scattered to make their way as best they could. It's not really known what happened to his brother Ernak. He and his followers may have settled, insofar as the word applies to the Huns, in the Dobruja, the region between the Carpathians and the Black Sea, but they seem to have abandoned the area by the time of his brother's aborted invasion. It seems most likely that the Eastern Huns were eventually incorporated into the new rising power on the steppes, the Turkic-speaking peoples that would become the Avars and Bulgars. Huns continued to appear as mercenaries well into the 6th century, mostly in the Eastern Mediterranean or in Persia, but as a power to be reckoned with, they were spent. I should take a quick moment and mention the Hephthalites, who sometimes crop up in sources and are also called the White Huns. Whether that name is a race thing or something else entirely is unknown, but they seem to have occupied the foothills of the Caucasus, and their relationship to the Huns of Attila is murky at best, though they do fairly frequently show up in the stories of the Persians. The Huns' replacements in the Carpathian Basin, the Gepids, aren't very familiar to us here on the Dark Ages podcast. Looking back, I find they have only appeared in passing in four episodes. I also find that I already told you some of the story of the Battle of Nadal in episode 13, but whatever, repetition is the mother of Ed the Haitian, whoever that is. The Gepids have been around since the beginning, at least according to Jordani. He, again, is the only source we have for the early legendary history of the Goths, and according to him, the Goths and Gepids are intimately related and consistently antagonistic. The story Jordanes tells is that the Goths left their homeland and crossed the sea in three ships. Whole population. Enough to build a whole new life in a new land in just three ships. Yeah. Like I said, legendary history. One of those ships was significantly slower than the others and arrived late. The passengers on that ship were mocked as Gepanta, meaning lazy, sluggish ones. And so the divergence between Goth and Gepid began. Since Jordanes is deeply unreliable and consistently hostile on the subject, it falls to archaeology to fill in the story, and as usual, the archaeology is tantalizing but vague. What's clear from both is that the Gepids were ultimately the most successful group within the old Hunnic domains. 
they would eventually succeed in subjugating or pushing out the other East German people of the area and establish their own kingdom. Called simply the Kingdom of the Gepids, or sometimes Gepidia, this kingdom encompassed basically the long-abandoned Roman province of Dacia, mostly Romania, on the western side of the Carpathian Mountains. Later on, they would lay claim to cities on the south side of the Danube as well, the old Roman strongholds of Sirmium and Sinigdunum, but not yet during our time period. The Gepid kings established mostly friendly relations with the Eastern Empire, and even minted coins with the emperor's name. In time, they became impressively wealthy, as evidenced by richly furnished grave goods found around their territory, with heavy gold ornaments in relative abundance. I'm going to put some additional links in the notes to this episode, because I really am doing these people a disservice. They deserve far more time than I'm able to give them. Around the edges of the Huns' former dominions were smaller Germanic peoples who fought for and won new territories for themselves. Some of them are familiar to us, like the Heralds, who have been involved with the Goths in one way or another since episode 1. The Heralds managed to grab territory in Moravia, while further to the west there were the Rugi in Lower Austria, who, you might remember, were the main antagonists in the Sori of St. Severina. There was a short-lived kingdom of Suevi who had not migrated with the Vandals, and a tribe called the Skiri held for a while land along the Middle Tisha River in Hungary. There's an archaeological site at Bakold Pushta that is linked to the Skirian royal family. It contained an earring with a really interesting and very modern-looking polyhedral bead, and I'll put up a link to the image. All of these people would probably have been considered Goths by those imprecise Roman commentators back in the early times. They certainly spoke languages related to Gothic, and may once have been part of the various Gothic coalitions that formed and dissipated through the 3rd century but now they were striking out on their own. The Skiri are particularly interesting because they seem to have retained a Hunnic leader, who we have met before, Edeko, who served Attila and who escorted Priscus when he went to meet the Hun king on his unprepossessing diplomatic mission. That was in episode 11, Beyond the River. Priscus's other escort on that adventure, the Roman-born Orestes, was also in the wind after Attila's death, and will have his own part to play shortly. Some of you are reading ahead. Please do not spoil it for the others. Out of all of these groups, the most significant would, of course, be the Ostrogoths. Ostrogoth means Eastern Goth, which I don't feel like is news. The distinction between Visigoth and Ostrogoth is sometimes carried all the way back to before the Huns' invasion, but that's anachronistic and incorrect. Both developed or had their ethnogenesis, under the influence of conditions following the Huns' arrival. Before the Huns, there were Tervingi and Grithungi, with other Gothic and Sarmatian tribes mixed in. Many, but not all, of the Tervingi crossed the Danube into the Roman Empire, and over the next 40 years became Visigoths. Most, but not all, of the Grithungi stayed behind the Danube, living under the rule of the Huns and turning into the Ostrogoths. It's just not accurate to say that the Ostrogoths were Grithungi by another name. It was much more complicated than that, and the connection between the two had more to do with the legitimizing efforts of later Ostrogothic writers than it did with objective reality. The leadership of the Ostrogoths, the Amal dynasty, was at pains to connect itself to the ancient Grithungi chieftains, back to Ermanaric, who had died fighting the Hun invasion. 
whether such a connection actually existed is open to debate. What is clear is that by the time of Attila's death, the Amali and the Ostrogoths were inextricably linked. Unfortunately, or fortunately if you're getting concerned about the length of the episode, the history of the Ostrogothic leadership within the Hun Confederation is convoluted and contradictory in the extreme. The sources suggest impossibilities like princes who achieve great feats of arms at age five and things like that. The archaeology is lacking, and even if it weren't, it wouldn't be able to solve those kinds of chronological problems. So I have to skip over about 70 years of specific historical narratives and just make some broad general statements. I'm sure you're all devastated. It's probably belaboring the point to say again that Gothic leaders that were willing to work within the new Hun power structure found their influence undiminished. The close relationship that developed was a source of wealth and power for the Ostrogothic elite, but also acute embarrassment for their descendants. Thus we hear the story in Jordani's explaining the origin of the Huns, as the offspring of Gothic witches and the demonic forces of the plains. Jordanes could not deny that there was a relationship between his own people and their overlords, but he took pains to emphasize the invaders' unholy nature and their separateness. The relationship was probably not actually that direct. There's nothing to suggest that the Huns were actually a long-lost tribe of the Goths or anything like that. Rather, it was a story that grew up over time as the Goths found that with Hunnic patronage, they could grow power centers and maintain many of their old traditions while adopting some of the newcomers' practices and attitudes as well. For instance, Hunnic styles of dress became ubiquitous, as we heard in Priscus's account. The step practice of princes embracing each other in public became commonplace among them as well. Most significant was the new attitude of, to desertion that the Ostrogoths incorporated from the Huns. You may remember a great deal of diplomatic back and forth with Constantinople revolved around the return of deserters and defectors who the Huns then regarded as runaway slaves and treated accordingly if they were returned. The Goths inherited the same attitude. Those that broke away from the center, from rule by the Amal dynasty, were anathematized and lost their Gothic identity in the eyes of the people. There had been Grithungi migrating into the empire ever since the Huns arrived on the scene. Accompanied by a contingent of Alan refugees and led by Alatheus and Saphrax, these Grithungi were instrumental in the victory at Adrianople. They then separated themselves from the Tervingi and made a separate deal with the Romans, settling as federates along the Sava River in Pannonia. Roman sources refer to these as the double people under two duces, which presumably referred to the duo of Goths and Alans. That settlement was successful but short-lived, as Aetius allowed the Huns to settle in the territories in return for their support in Gaul and so the Hun-Goth-Alan complex was extended. Groups of Goths and their cousins continued to escape the Huns' overlordship and seek refuge in the empire, and were settled in various places, but their numbers were never very large, and by the end of the 420s the flow had slowed to a trickle as the Huns consolidated and extended their power. I can feel the tickle of deep weeds around my ankles, warning of boggy ground ahead, so let's skip over the rest of the tenuous story, and find the firmer ground of 453, and Attila's death, again. The main body of Ostrogoths at that time were led by an Amal king named Valamir. He, along with his two brothers, Thudamir and Vidimir. After the wars that established the Gepids as the strongest inheritors of the Hunnic territory, 
the brothers crossed the Danube and received lands in Pannonia again. Life for the peasantry of the Middle Empire must have been incredibly uncertain and very confusing in those days. The three brothers took responsibility for the security of the lands along the right bank of the Danube, roughly between modern Budapest down to Sirmium, which is now called Sremska Mitrovica in Serbia, if you're looking at it for it on a map. On the surface, this arrangement looks like the eastern analog to the Visigoths' kingdom in Aquitaine, but only on the surface. Valamir's Goths were unable to co-op the administration of the Pannonian lands, mostly because that administration had been pretty much devastated by the rolling conflicts. They could not establish any kind of system for raising revenue for themselves, aside from violent expropriation, and so remained dependent on subsidies from Constantinople. The combination of poor administration and constant external threat made the long-term survival of the Pannonian kingdom a losing proposition. Various waves of Hun raiders attacked, the first in 456, and they came so suddenly Valamir was unable to call on his brothers for help. The Goth was victorious, though, so much so that we are told that the invaders retreated all the way back to Ukraine. That might actually be true in this case, as there are reports that the Goths that still lived in the Crimea had to fend off a sudden influx of Huns from the west at about that same time. When Leo I took the eastern throne just the next year, he attempted to revise the Foetus with Valamir's Goths. He seems to have taken the same approach as was taken to Milton in office space. Just stop paying him and the problem will take care of itself. It worked about as well for Leo as it did in the movie. After two years, Valamir sent a message asking what the emperor thought treaties were for and would he please return their stapler. No answer was forthcoming and fire followed. Valamir led his army a plundering up the Morava River, penetrating all the way into Epirus and even occupying the provincial capital, the modern town of Duras in Albania, which I am certainly mispronouncing. The basic mechanisms of negotiation with the Imperium remained unchanged from the days of Alaric. After several rounds of this kind of negotiation, Leo relented and reinstated the previous agreement with annual payments specified of 300 pounds of gold per year plus one red swing line stapler. Not exactly Attila the Hun money, but it would keep Valamir's people fed through the winter. As surety for the agreement, Valamir's nephew, the son of Thudemir, was sent to Constantinople as a hostage. He was about seven or eight years old and would spend his formative years in the New Rome. His name was Theodoric, and I promise he will be the one and only Theodoric that will be on the final exam at the end of the season. Oh, did I forget to mention the exam? Oh dear. I am leaving several threads dangling, but I fear we have reached a decent stopping point, and I don't want to overstay my welcome. So next time, our tennis match will bring our attention back to the West, where we will finally, finally, finally talk about what's been happening on the Sceptered Isle, the shining jewel set in the Silver Sea, but the Silver Sea will turn out to be more of a marsh, and we will find ourselves in the weeds very quickly indeed as we attempt to untangle the problem of Britannia. And Scotland and Ireland too, because I like to make my life difficult for myself. Just one more episode after that, which will probably be pretty massive, and then I will be taking a hiatus. At least from releasing episodes. I'll keep on reading and writing through the whole thing. Maybe actually get out ahead of this thing a little bit. Then I'll be back around the beginning of October to start off Season 2. 
How exactly Season 2 will be structured remains to be seen, but we'll all find out when we get there. In the meantime, there is a Facebook page. Just search for Dark Ages Podcast. Finally starting to see a little bit of activity over there, which is great to see. And on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Dark Ages Pod. Haven't been very active on the gram lately. We'll try to fix. Very quick shout-outs to Ben and an anonymous Amazon customer who left reviews on Audible, as well as one to Phil, who left one on the Apple Podcast UK site. It is not that I didn't appreciate the feedback before, guys. It's that I literally didn't know it existed. I just learned where to find those reviews. If there are other reviews floating around out there you'd like to make me aware of, you can just send me an email at darkagespod at gmail.com. Also, if you just want to say hi or ask a question or whatever, use that email or the contact page at the website. All right, that is all for now. Thank you all very much for listening. I'll talk to you again next time. Take care.